The Beef and Dairy Network is sponsored by Lactobulk, the new milk bulking agent from Mitchell's. If it's not Mitchell's, get back in the truck. Remember, if you use Lactobulk to enhance your product, in most jurisdictions outside of the USA, it will be illegal to sell it using the name milk. However, there is no problem because you are able to use the phrases dairy-adjacent fluid, bovine-derived emulsion, and white liquid food. For 10% off your first shipment of Lactobulk, simply use the code, I can't start the day without my emulsion. Hello, and welcome to the Beef and Dairy Network podcast, the number one podcast for those involved, or just interested, in the production of beef animals and dairy herds. The Beef and Dairy Network podcast is the podcast companion to the Beef and Dairy Network website, as well as a printed magazine, brought to you by Lactobulk. Now, this month's episode is about the esteemed position of the man at beef, the personal beef sommelier to the king or queen of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth realms. To hear more about this most prestigious of positions, I spoke to friend of the show, Professor James Harkham. Hello, I'm Professor James Harkham. And I'm Professor of History at the Wisconsin Cattle College of the Internet. The role of the man at beef is a very ancient role. It it dates back as far as the Norman Conquest in 1066, something that was brought over uh, by the Normans, whose nobility always had a personal beef sommelier. Um, their, Their great love of beef, of course, even stretches as far as giving us the word beef. Uh, which comes from the Norman French le beau oeuf, or the beautiful egg, which the Normans themselves foolishly believed that all good cattle were born from. The man at beef, succeeding from the sergeant at beef, of course, came from the, those those Norman noble houses. Of course, every every castle, every great hall would have had its its every lord would have had his own beef sommelier. But the the the, the one who was in personal attendance to the king would have been that which was acknowledged as having the the greatest palate for beef, uh, a tongue who could identify the individual, uh, what we would now know as tannins and enzymes that give beef its rich deliciousness, but which at the time would have been interpreted as a a form of benign witchcraft. I mean, there's also a a kind of spiritual edge. You can't just um, reduce it down to tannins and enzymes and chemicals. There's something more than that, isn't there? Oh, of course, yes, absolutely. The the spiritual dimension to beef, uh, I think, has been recognised since time immemorial. But certainly, in the period that we're discussing, we have to understand that that the, the the interplay between church and state then was was quite fluid. Bishop Odo, the the right hand man of William the Conqueror, was himself a uh, was was a practicing bishop, and as such, was entitled to to ride a cow into battle. And so, the the role then of the man at beef at this stage is almost as much a religious one. As a, as a civic one, that's right. Yes, it's a, it's a form of communion between beef, between God, between the king and his people. The ability to select the prime cuts of beef was perhaps the the, the highest honor. And indeed, I think as as you can we know from lists of orders of precedence uh, at the court of Richard II. In fact, many men at beef were paid more than the Archbishop of Canterbury, and were in fact allowed to sit in his seat on special days. The next big development in the role of the man at beef is in the mid-1800s, where suddenly there's a huge change and the man at beef, who used to be a loyal British subject, was now an American. Can you explain what happened there? 
So what we're dealing with here is a, is a situation where by the mid-1800s, it, it, it's become imperative to, to find a kind of diplomatic solution to the, the, the tensions between Britain and the United States, you know, and it was ultimately decided that the, the Manat beef would be provided to the British monarchy by, by the President of the United States himself as a sort of diplomatic gift. I see, I see. And with the man of beef being sent over by the president, did we send anything in return? Yes, we really must understand this as a as a form of diplomatic interchange. And just as the president of the United States takes great care when selecting the the man of beef who will uh, eventually be sent to to represent their nation at the the, the British royal court, uh, so we, in our turn, uh, have carefully selected a, a number of our, our finest minds, usually in, in the field of entertainment, of course, uh, to go to America and, and, and to work with them as part of that diplomatic process of, of building goodwill. Think of um, Cary Grant, Stan Laurel, the, the, the Osbournes, and of course, in more recent years, the, the creative team behind the HBO hit show Succession. British writers really will put a shift in for you if you want to eradicate any trace of hope or optimism from your work. Of course, also, we sent over James Corden. Yes, uh, again, a, a diplomatic misstep that may take centuries to undo. Now, you have to forgive me for reminding you that it has now been 10 months since the death of Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II, not just the greatest monarch that this nation has ever had, but also a patron of this very podcast. Indeed, throughout the 1990s, she often wrote into the show using a pseudonym, Babs Rascal. And who can forget the time she came to the annual British Beef Council dinner and barn dance in disguise as Babs. Of course, we all saw through the disguise, quite literally, given that all she was wearing was a fishnet mesh sequin bikini and cowboy boots. But you know what? What burst through the gaps in the fishnet, more than anything else, was dignity. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was a constant source of strength for the British public, loved since before she became Queen for her service during the Second World War, where she climbed into a German machine gun emplacement and beheaded four SS officers with just a bottle opener. Following her coronation in 1953, the Queen was a constant public advocate for beef, and many of you will remember her making public appearances with her men at beef at her side. First of all, Sir Django Hardy, until 1992, and then Sir Robert Battlebus. And this month, I had the great pleasure to interview Sir Robert. Hello, my name is Sir Robert Battlebus, and I was Queen Elizabeth II's man at beef. Uh, Sir Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a great privilege to talk to someone who has worked in such close quarters with Her Majesty the Queen. It was my privilege as well as my pleasure. When the previous Man at Beef, Sir Django Hardy, stepped down in 1992, the next Man at Beef was, of course, chosen by the American President George H.W. Bush. I started by asking Robert how he came to be on Bush's radar. My father, uh, Lucas Battlebus, knew George H.W. Bush from their Skull and Bones days at Yale. And... Uh, you know, they kept in close contact. And of course, when President Bush was uh, the head of the CIA, he would come over to our house all the time. And I called him Uncle George. And uh, he was just a wonderful man. And he would share with us just all kinds of secrets that uh, 
we probably in retrospect had no business knowing but you know there's a certain ivy league understanding that you don't if if you're told something that is potentially harmful to uh the nation or humanity you can't tell the secret and if you do it is frowned upon and they will find you so they might say to you for example hey uh guess what fidel castro is still alive uh we bribed him to fake his own death and he now lives in florida and works as a Fidel Castro lookalike. Um, why Why are you, where did you get that very specific example? You know, you hear things on the grapevine. On the grapevine. Uh, also, when you replied to my email, it's actually part of your email footer. It's got your name and your phone number with a link to your website, and then it has a little section with a number of what you describe as fun facts and state secrets. Oh, you know what? That's on me. Uh, I forgot to change that. That was a thing when I first got email. Uh, I thought it was fun to have a footer, and then I realized it's not really a thing that people do anymore. But I just haven't bothered to haven't bothered to change it. I also probably shouldn't have an AOL address anymore. But um, you know, if it ain't broke, uh, but apparently it is broke because I should not have that as my footer. Yeah, but that that's a lie, though, isn't it? Because in the footer. There's a section with all the fun state secrets and there's like the Fidel Castro one and there's the one about how Hawaii isn't real. And there's one about how Jimmy Carter's peanut farm was actually growing alien eggs. Um, And then there's a little gif, um, which is one of the minions winking. Now, when you first started your AOL email address, the minions wouldn't have been out yet. So you couldn't have had a gif of one of the minions back then. Well, they they weren't out to the general public, no. Oh, I see. They were CIA thing. That's your words. So you're telling me that George Bush Senior, as the head of the CIA, came up with the idea of the minions. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that specifically. I am saying that this is the most that I can tell you is that uh, I have seen minions and been delighted by them uh, many years before they hit the big screen. Wow, that's as far as I can go. Sir Robert got the job of Queen Elizabeth's man at beef when his predecessor, Sir Django Hardy, decided to step down from the role in 1992. However, stepping down from the job isn't simple. Most men at beef will continue in the role until either their own death or the death of their monarch. Uh, But if a man at beef wishes to retire, they may do so on the condition that they are then executed by the Pope, which hints at that religious significance that existed in the medieval era. I've really looked into this and uh, I've gone back into the archives here, uh, the Vatican, the Library of Congress, the works of Dan Brown. And the one thing that really stands out, I think, is is how much the Pope enjoys it uh, when they get a chance. It's a day out and, you know, at the end of the day, it's something different for them. He threw that switch with gusto. So, um, Sir Robert, you and the Queen witnessed the execution of your predecessor uh, by the Pope. He was in charge of the the meat grinder, which made such quick work of Sir Django. It's been written that your close relationship with the Queen was really cemented there at that early stage when, you know, the fact that you both had to watch this happen kind of brought you closer in in a way. Oh, uh, more than in a way, some of the blood got on us. And um, I remember uh, brushing some blood off myself and she was doing the same. And then our hands sort of glanced against each other. And then we just very briefly, and I want to stress this very briefly because this was not a, um, 
This was not a breach of protocol. This was just a purely human moment. And although, uh, you know, Her Majesty's uh, blood was filled with the divine. Uh, she was still a person uh, in some way. And when our hands touched, uh, we did squeeze hands. And then we both, we giggled a little bit. And um, we made eye contact. And I immediately averted my eyes. And she gave my hand one final squeeze as if to say, it's all right that you looked at me that time. And uh, from then on, we were, uh, I want to say, friends. That sounds like a really special memory for you. It almost feels like a betrayal to to put this image in people's minds. But if you can imagine uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and I um, laying on the floor of her bedroom, uh, just helplessly laughing till tears run down our faces as corgis are jumping on us, over us, licking us, that is a day that I will that I will treasure forever until I am executed. So, Sir Robert. Tell me about the typical day for Queen Elizabeth's man at beef. A typical day, I would be told what time the queen was planning on rising, and I would set my alarm for two minutes before. Uh, I would sleep in my clothes and my uniform, which is, uh, it's not dissimilar to the uniform of the beef eaters, the, the guards you see at the Tower of London, who are obviously misnamed. Um, none of them eat beef. They they exclusively eat raven meat. And just to explain, of course, back mm. in the day when that was happening, when they were first given the name, it was thought, scientifically, we now know it's wrong, that ravens were a kind of flying small cow, basically, because they're so intelligent. Yes. And uh, they thought that the uh, the raven's beak, you know, it's such a, it's such a, uh, a very, you know, specific looking and fearsome beak. They thought it was a horn, like just a, a single horn that was growing out of the uh, the little cow's head yeah. uh, right in the front there. And you can, of course, um, milk a crow. You can. And the thing is, crows are very smart. So they were, they will remember the face of someone who has milked them. And depending on how much they enjoyed or did not enjoy the experience, they can either reward you for the rest of your life, or they can punish you every day. If they liked your milking, they can bring you coins. They can bring you jewels. They can bring you- The eye of an enemy. The, exactly. The eye of an enemy or a nice belt. And uh, if they don't like you, they can bring you coins, but from another country. And so you can't use them. Mm. They'll bring you the eye of a friend. They'll bring you not a great belt or like a nice belt that doesn't fit. So. You're wearing the kind of beef eater style outfit. People will probably know what that, that looks like. You've got the rough, kind of the red tunic, the hat. Yeah. Um, but of course, it's all leather for the man at beef. So right. it's the same exact outfit except black leather. And it is uh, it is as warm as you would imagine inside that thing. And especially when you put the leather hat on, you know, you're, you're talking about a, um, uh, a huge heat tolerance that is required for this job. And of course, when you started... That leather had taken on the shape of Sir Django Hardy. You know, as leather does, it conforms to the, the body that's in it. Yes. A bit like the kind of, you know, bum groove that can appear in a leather sofa after you've been using exactly. it for a few years. That's correct. That's one of the reasons you would sleep in the uniform is to get it to uh, to conform to your shape. And it takes it takes decades. Well, as you, as you say, you, you'd set your alarm for two minutes before the queen was due to rise. Yes. You'd be in your leather outfit. Yes. What, what happens once the uh, the alarm goes off? I stand outside Her Majesty's door and I wait for her to appear. And this could take, 
it could take five minutes. It could take hours. I mean, if she's if she's feeling like having a bit of a lay in and she just wants to, uh, uh, you know, read the paper or scroll through Twitter or whatever. Um, she was a huge Reddit user, I believe. She loved Reddit. She lurked. She lurked, but uh, uh, she did have a burner account that she would comment on things. She loved the Romancing the Stone series of movies. Uh, Romancing the Stone in the second one. The title escapes me now, but she um, she would search Reddit for people talking about those movies, and there's not as many forums dedicated to it as one might like. But if anyone said anything negative about it, she would get in there and she would just destroy that person. It gave her great pleasure to do that. Uh, anyway, so I would wait outside the door as she would emerge. I would be standing against the wall, and when I heard the door click open, I would immediately swivel around so that I was facing the door as if I'm barring her way, but I'm not. And in my hand is uh, a bouillon cube. And I say, good morning, your majesty. And she would say, good morning, Sir Robert, or good morning, Bobby, whatever she called me. And uh, she would pop that in and just crunch, crunch, crunch. And that was the start of her day. That was her first encounter with beef. And it's, it's you know, there are, of course, breakfast meats, but you don't want to give anyone a cube of raw meat first thing in the morning that's something you have to work your way up to I see. um and she went and that she would go from cook meat to raw meat over the course of the day let's talk then about your friendship again because you started in 1992 and by the late 90s the the tabloid press began to ask questions about your relationship with the queen yeah. And there was a sense, wasn't there, that people thought that maybe you had too much power because of your relationship to the Queen, your your proximity to power. I remember, for example, back in 2004, I think it was, the Royal Navy named uh, a battleship after you, HMS Battlebus. Yeah. And people started to think, well, you know, why is she naming some of our greatest military hardware after this guy who's just giving her beef every day? Well, I mean... Okay, there's a couple things there. Number one... That was the Queen's prerogative to name that cruiser after me. And uh and it was it was her way of honoring me. If you ask me, uh, I'm not a fan of boats. So it wasn't uh, the hugest honor, but it was not something I asked her to do. I would my dream was always to have a car named after me and to create my own car. And um, you know, I did try to build a car once and it was very frustrating. I, I bought uh four tires and um uh, I thought I would just instinctively know what to get next, and uh, I didn't. I I I didn't, and it was very frustrating because I put the four tires in place where a car tires would be, and I would look at it every day and say, "What connects these? How do they? How do? What goes on next?" And because um, I did find a, a, a roof of a car at the dump. Um, and so I had that sort of in the middle. <laughs> Sorry, Sir Robert, short, it, it just strikes me that you're you're telling me this shaggy dog story about you trying to make a car as a way to deflect from the fact that what I'm asking you about, which is the fact that a battleship was named after you. Okay, I I, I that's fair, and uh, and um, because I you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you were about to tell that story, but going through every single part that goes into making a car, right? Yes, I was. You've got me there. And that would take hours. Oh, at least. And uh, I was willing to, I'll be honest, I was willing to wait you out 
on this recording and and uh and just keep talking you were essentially going to filibuster the whole podcast right yeah i, I could tell see i if, could tell it was going to happen okay well uh, good for you and congratulations you're you're a regular colombo well let's move on um because i've got some other papers here from, from the archive uh, this is a quote from the daily mail back in 2005 not only does sir robert feed beef into her mouth he pours poison into her ear Mm. Uh, the Daily Mirror wrote, the power behind the throne is the American citizen, Robert Battlebus, who last year begged the Queen to give her assent to the execution of his brother, Chudley. Okay. Uh, there's, of course, uh, a grain of truth in a lot of that, uh, but it's surrounded by uh, a, a tissue of uh, untruths. Yes, I did ask the Queen if she would execute my brother. No, she did not do it. Yes, he did end up being executed. No, I did not do it. Yes, it was someone the queen asked to execute him. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, did I ask the queen to execute my brother is not quite the same as my brother was executed by someone the queen asked to execute my brother. Do you see? I think listeners might think you're splitting hairs there, to be honest. I don't, I don't see that at all because... She trust she trusted me to be someone who would always have a little bit of meat that she could put in her mouth, no matter where we were. She trusted me to know which cuts of meat were the best for her. She also trusted me to be uh, a silent witness to whatever she needed to express. If she needed to blow off some steam, if she needed to scream or yell or kick the wall, I was there. And she knew that I would listen without judgment and would always say something encouraging if she needed it. So for me to ask favors of her, will you name this ship after me? Will you kill my brother? It's not quite that cut and dried. Yeah, okay. You know, next no, to her okay, majesty. Okay. Hmm? I, okay, I understand this. It feels like you're going to, you're kind of doing the filibuster thing again, because you're aware what I'm going to ask next, right? So I have no idea. The obvious I have no next, idea what you're going Okay, ask. the obvious next question is, okay, fine, you wanted the, the 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 big ship named after you. Well, that's what happened. Do you deny, or, or, or can you accept, that the fact that the first mission that that boat went on was to sail across the Atlantic to South Carolina, where your brother lives, and fire upon his home, had something to do with, with what you wanted to happen? I do not deny that those events took place. I am not in any position, nor was I ever, to order one of Her Majesty's ships to fire on the United States. So you're saying that the are you saying that the Queen independently decided to to get the Royal Navy to fire at your brother's home? Here's what I'm going to tell you: the Queen was a very empathic person. Uh, she was very empathetic, and so she knew, without my having to tell her, that I despised my brother that uh, we were past the point of no return, that there was never going to be any kind of rapprochement. She knew without me telling her, uh, just by pointing on a map where he lived, she knew without me having to say a word when he would be home. Um, this is what friendship is, is that you don't always have to have this, you know, will, I didn't know that I wanted her to do that for me. 
hello, my name is uh, Timothy Spaglioni. Uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, originally from London. Uh, I now reside in South Carolina. I received a job offer from the, uh, the South Carolina Department of Agricultural Fraud. We specialize in fruit fraud, uh, certain fruits being uh, disguised as other fruits. Uh, so the job that I was hired to do was to uh, was to prosecute people who paint apples to look like peaches. Oh, interesting. Wow. So yeah, I, I guess yeah, I guess you can paint an apple to look like a peach. There's a kind of um, a texture problem though, isn't there? You 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 you're talking about the fuzz. I'm assuming that they're gluing something on to the apple. Yeah, yeah, it's a good guess and it's certainly what they used to do in the old days. You know, they would use any sort of adhesive material, be it glue, be it toffee. Uh, but it was very labor intensive, but also much easier to spot as well. You know, an apple rolled in super glue, you know, and then with, uh, you know, with, with sawdust shavings. I'm going to spot that. But these days, our challenges are much harder. Right. Because I guess it's AI these days. You've really hit the nail on the head. They, the, the things they can do now, the, the detail in that fuzz, it's entirely artificial. 3D printed? 3D printed. Again, you've got you've got it in one. You know, AI will scour the internet because there's there's obviously there's there's quite a few pictures of peaches. If you if I mean don't do it now, but if you were to Google peaches and then press, you've got to then go up to image, and then that's all pictures. I'm I'm a Bing user, but I assume it's a similar. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's it's you know whatever you want to whatever you want to go through. Um, there's loads of pictures of peaches on there now. What the what the AI will do is it'll 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 incorporate all of those. Send that information to a three D printer. The three D printer will then render the fuzz for mm. then the uh, for then the peach handlers to roll the apples in. And yeah, I mean, it's just it's really you have to look really really closely if you want to spot that. Well, thank you for your service. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I mean, obviously, we're not we're not here to talk about your your job, but that that explains how uh, an Englishman like yourself ended up over in South Carolina. We're talking to you because you met your your partner Chudley. Uh, whilst over there. Tell me a little bit about that. I was out here in South Carolina, you know, enjoying the work, and I was, certainly wasn't looking to meet anybody, but I attended an Avril Lavigne concert. In the rough and tumble of the Avril Lavigne concert, where people young and old, buoyed along by the skateboarding-based music, jostle against one another uncontrollably, Chudley Battlebus, Sir Robert's brother, had been knocked to the ground and Timothy, seeing his distress, came to his aid. This poor man had fallen, and he had mud all over his clothes, he had mud in his head, he had mud all over his face. So I couldn't really see what he, what he looked like. And, you know, he's looking for something to clean himself off with, and, and I realised I had one peach. So I, um, I, 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 I took the peach, and I just gently used it to clean the mud off his face. And obviously, it, with, with the natural fuzz it's sort of like a like a cotton pad really i suppose it's it's and and obviously the natural peach oil that is secreted from the skin is sort of like a like a kind of a makeup remover you know uh and so i'm 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 cleaning it and and as the as his face is revealed as the peach reveals this man's face i realized just how how beautiful he is how good looking he is you know and obviously he's now very grateful because he's got a very clean face and um just as i get the last in the mud off he just leans forward and he bites 
into the peach. He sinks his teeth and you can hear the... Because they're obviously very juicy, you know, it was a particularly juicy specimen, you know, and, and, and the, the peach juice is running down his chin. And he's smiling. He's smiling at me. And so I lean forward and I bite the other side of the peach. So now we're we're either side of it. Lady in the Tramp style. Exactly. And that, that was actually the thought that went through my head. I thought to myself, this is, this is like a fruity version of, of Lady in the Tramp. One of the sexiest dog movies going. I would, uh, yeah, and I think probably in the Disney canon, I think it's probably, is, I think probably the horniest of all the cartoons. And I'm counting The Little Mermaid in there as well, actually, you know. Within six months of the Avril Lavigne concert, Chudley and Timothy had moved in together and were a couple. But after a few years together, things started to go a bit strange. So it's 2006, which meant we'd been together for seven years. And Chudley just started behaving very strangely. You know, he would he would disappear at all times of the day and night. He started using very complex maritime phrases, you know, out of context, which I found really strange. Or he'd start telling you facts... You know, facts about boats, which sayings came from came from boats. I mean, this happens with a lot of relationships, especially especially ones involving men. They become middle-aged man and they start spouting facts about the Navy. So you must have thought, well, this is annoying, but you know, we've got to expect this. You're in a relationship with a man, that will that will happen. Absolutely. And I can remember when I came out to my parents, you know, as a teenager, my mother, you know, was so understanding, but the one her 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 big fear and I can remember, you know, tears in her eyes. She said to me, what happens when you become middle-aged and your partner starts spouting out random facts? You know, but I didn't want to hear it then. I was, I was too young. Yeah. You know, I was too excited to start my life, you know. Um, but she was right. So, you know, I he was behaving strangely, but, you know, a middle-aged man spouting random maritime facts. It's not the strangest thing in the world. So I didn't really, you know, I, I didn't think it was too much of an issue. But then, you know, I found a um, tri-corner hat in the trunk, as we say over here, in the trunk of our car. Kind of old-timey, sort of Napoleon-style. Exactly, Lord yeah. Nelson. Big Napoleon, Lord Horatio Nelson. It's, you know, it's the three. It's tri-cornered, you know. Yeah. It's, um, and as soon as I saw it, I thought to myself, okay, something's going on here, you know. So I, I confronted Chudley and uh, and the full extent of the problem became clear. You know, he had purchased a um, he had purchased a secondhand German battleship and was also was also keeping a full time crew of ninety sailors on there at a very competitive rate. And I suddenly thought to myself, how could I have been so blind? And I guess you have to ask him, you know, why why did you buy a battleship? Because yeah. th- this feels like. Maybe I'm getting ahead of you here, but this feels like more than just an interest in in the maritime. This feels like oh, something yeah. else. It's 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 definitely an escalation. And I kept asking him. You know, I mean, I was I was so upset, I was so angry and upset, and I kept saying, "Why have you done this? Why have you done this?" And he just sat there, and he just he just all he would say is, "I think I know what Robert's planning. Trust me, we need this." And that's Robert, his his brother. His brother, who I've never met. So how do I know? You know, maybe we do. Maybe we do. But at the end of the day, it turned out that Chudley was right. Right. 
fast forward about a year, about 2007, I am um, uh, woken by the sound of cannon fire. I'm lying on my back. I open my eyes and the, the roof of the house has been completely blown off. So I get up and I look out to sea and I can see that we're under attack from another battleship flying the British flag. And Chudley's fears had been borne out. And actually, I, I bet at that moment you were pretty glad you had a secondhand German battleship. I was, abso- I was absolutely delighted. And, and even more so, I was glad that it was staffed with a crew of 90 sailors on a competitive rate. Because if those 90 sailors were staffed on a less than competitive rate, they may not have mobilised into action at the speed that they did. I mean, it was, it was absolute craziness. Chudley got straight on the phone, called the crew. And to be fair to them, within a couple of minutes, they were already returning fire. You know, again competitive rate that's you do you get what you pay for it turns out when you um when you crew a second-hand german battleship and we were fed, we were really lucky so we're just there eating our breakfast and watching the battle and these ships this british ship is is pretty evenly matched with our german ship i mean i don't know how many sailors were on the uh were on the british ship but i certainly don't know what rate they were on but they were giving it their all so i thought to myself Oh my God! You know, there's a chance that we could uh, there's a chance we could lose here. You know, they could sink our battleship, and then what happens to us? You know, we're in big trouble. But after about ten minutes, the British battleship took a direct hit from uh, an old Russian submarine that had uh, appeared, and it turned out that, unbeknownst to me, Chudley had also bought this old Russian submarine. So even though he'd revealed to you that he'd spent ten million on a battleship. He'd still kept from you the fact that he had also bought a, an old Russian submarine. I wasn't prepared for it. But I suppose in the moment, I was grateful that we had the, we had the Russian submarine to bolster our forces. Chudley was right. Yeah, I mean, he was just pleased to punch to have sunk that battleship. And you know what? It really brought us closer together. You know, I will take some pride in the fact that... Uh, the uh, cruiser, the battle cruiser that bore my name, did not sink immediately, but made it pretty far back uh, on its way to uh, to England before it sank. More after this. If you are hiring, you're currently dealing with a slowing economy, as we all know. And that adds to your challenges. Thankfully, there's a hiring partner who is focused on you and your needs, and that partner is, of course, ZipRecruiter. Now, the good thing about ZipRecruiter is it has straightforward pricing, so you can stick to your budget, and it finds great candidates fast, saving you time and money uh, using their smart technology, which allows you to invite the top candidates to apply for your job. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash beef. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-E-F. Beef. I'm Jordan Morris. And I'm Jesse Thorne. On Jordan Jesse Go, we make pure, delightful nonsense. We rope in awesome guests. And bring them down to our level. We got stupid with Judy Greer. My friend Molly and I call it having the space weirds. Pat Oswalt. Can I get a Balrog burger and some Aragorn fries? Thank you. And Kumail Nanjiani. I've come back with cat toothbrushes, which is impossible to use. Come get stupider with us at MaximumFun.org. Look, your podcast app's already open. Just pull it out. Give Jordan Jesse Go a try. Being smart is hard. Be dumb instead.
Now, you mentioned earlier that beef-wise, you were, you were building up from a, a, a small stock cube in the morning through cooked beeves in the day and then through to raw beef at the end of the day. And you were, of course, talking about the raw beef banquet. Yes. Which took place every day. This would be um, served around 5.30 p.m., and she was not afraid of raw meat. She loved a tendon, and she would dig in there with uh, – it was, I think, safe to say, her favorite meal of the day. And one of the things that I really treasure about that meal is that when she would eat that raw meat, she would look up at me as she was chewing. You know, as the as the blood was just, you know, surrounding her – her mouth uh, almost uh, clown style. She would maintain steady eye contact with me, and I felt that to my core. She was communicating something to me, saying, this is how it should be, and I will revert to uh, uh, the monster that lives inside me, and I will tear the flesh, and I will remain supreme, which I think is, that's a good way for a monarch to feel. And when when this was happening, was it just her on her own, or was she also with her despicable children? The children would be there. They would face the wall. And this is uh, a custom from time immemorial. Uh, later, it was uh, uh, referenced in the movie The Blair Witch Project. But the, the kids would be forced to come into the room, face the wall, and listen to the sounds of their mother eating this raw flesh. And it was... You know, the the symbolism there is never forget we are a pack. I am the the leader of the pack. I eat first, and then you eat after me. We are inbred, and we like it that way. And so the likes of Prince Edward and his wife, Sophie of Wessex, they would then come in and sort of have the scraps. They'd be able to turn around once the queen was finished. And Yes, once the queen was finished, and they would have to wait until they heard the door close on the mm-hmm. other side of the room. They would not see her enter or leave. Once they heard that door, they could then turn around and they could feast on the scraps. And if they were, you know, if the queen was feeling generous that day, the scraps would be on the table. But if she were feeling, look, she's she's a mom and she had kids. And sometimes the kids will disappoint you or make you angry or uh, challenge you in some way. She would leave the scraps on the floor. And then she would I feel like I could say this now. There was a painting that had the eye holes cut out that she could remove and then watch the kids, um, you know, Charles, and the grandkids as well. She would watch, uh, you know, uh, William and, uh, oh, I can't say his name anymore. It's a shame, really. Um, but she would watch them, uh, you know, crawling about and eating the scraps. And So just in, in terms of that, the person whose name you can't bring yourself to say, um, just in case the listeners aren't sure who you're talking about, are we talking about a certain member of the royal family who is now a very, very good podcaster, one of the world's best? If you want to take out any modifiers there, I can probably confirm what your suspicions are. Sure, I think people will understand what we're talking about. Yeah, I think so. Okay, I'd like to get back onto the theme of whether you overstepped the boundaries of your job and whether you used your influence Um, in a way that was unbefitting the role, your brother Chudley was eventually executed, right? Yes. Flash forward to 2010, and Chudley wins a a competition, an all-expenses-paid trip to London. 
And of course, I'm excited because it's a chance to come home to London, which I haven't been back to since uh, since moving to America. So yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited to show um, Chudley London to to take him around all my old haunts. I want to show him the sights. Uh, and what's great is the trip, the holiday that he's won, comes with all of the sightseeing included in it. So you know, we're going to go to the aquarium, we're going to go and see Jersey Boys, but we start with the Tower of London. And um, and, and at one point during the tour, one of the beef eaters, um, which is you know one of the guards said to Chudley, you know, do you want to put your neck on the, the execution block? This is where countless people had been beheaded in the old days. And uh, I mean, what a, what a photo opportunity, right? Well, exactly. You know, immediately we're thinking to ourselves, you know, we'll pop that up on uh, This we'll is Facebook profile Instagram. photo 101. It's gold. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the absolute dream. You know, he's there and maybe he looks a bit scared and, you know, the beef eaters. He's, he's playing along, you know, he's good value. So he puts his head on the block and we're all laughing um, you know because it's you know we we, we think it's uh, we think it's like a bit you know and, and, and we've sort of made friends with the other people on the tour as we've been walking around and um, the beef eater gets a big axe great gigantic axe and now we're really laughing you know and he raises it over his head and he says um, someone's been a naughty boy you're going to have to get your head chopped off you know and we're going oh no please you know and Chudley's going oh no go, well, go on then you know and it, we're all having so much fun. And the axe came down and chopped Chudley's head clean off his body. And I thought to myself, it, it must be some sort of like a hologram. Um, you know, they've used AI or maybe they've used a 3D printer to to, to render a head, perhaps when, when, when our backs were turned for a moment, when we weren't looking. Really, honestly, it was only when Chudley's head rolled off the block rolled towards me stopped at my feet his head looked up at me and said it's robert it's robert Robert. he's finally got me the bastard and then um and then obviously just you know he died and that's not a hologram no that's that's when i realized that was the moment i thought to myself that that wasn't that wasn't a hologram and honestly right up until the moment his head actually came off and i realized that that axe was real i was having an absolutely brilliant time so obviously it's total chaos you know there are people screaming tourists are running everywhere the beef eater he's just he's he's indiscriminately beheading tourists you know it's i'm in i'm in shock and and grief and fear and i so then i'm i then i'm sick all over his head, and then before I know what's happening, I'm I'm bundled in to the back of a van by uh, somebody from the security services, and we and we're off. We set off at a you know we're 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 screeching through the streets of of London, and they said to me, "You can't ever tell anybody about what's what's happened today," and they said, "If you promise us now not to tell anyone, we can show you this movie we've got. It's called Despicable Me." And it, it's got these characters in it called the Minions, and they're really like cute and charming, and you're going to love it. And this film will never be on general release. So the only way to ever see it is to be silent about this incident. Wow. That's a really yeah. weird sort of thing to have to think about, isn't it? I thought to myself, so these people are responsible for murdering the love of my life, and now they want to try and buy my silence with a film called Despicable Me. And I know the law. If there's one thing I know, well, if there's two things I know, it's a uh, apple disguise of the peach and it's the law. 
So I said to them, I said, I'm not, you can't silence me. You know, I'm a British citizen. I'm going straight to the police and I'm going to tell them everything. And that's when they were like, okay, you can do that. But if you do that, you can't watch Despicable Me. And I think that then they told me that Steve Carell did one of the voices. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then I was in the horns of a dilemma. Then I thought, you know, he's very, very talented. Yeah. And they were saying, you'll never see this film. You'll never see it. And I guess more as the conversation goes on, you're kind of building up this film in your head more and more as this kind of like, this does sound good, actually, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I'm saying, no, 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 this is about truth. This is about justice. And then they were like, yeah, but you have to understand there's like the world, the where the minions live, it's like a big cave and they go up and down on these like lifts and stuff. And I was like, this does sound good. And I said, well, could I maybe watch like a bit of it? see if I like it, and then if I don't, if I do like it, I'll keep it quiet, and if I don't like it, well, then I'm going to go to the police and tell them that you've executed my boyfriend, and that was, they really didn't want to do that. Mm. They were, they said, no, no, no. You have to make the decision first, then you can watch the whole film, or you say no, and, you, and you'll never, and I remember, I remember the, the, word, the exact words, you will never watch Despicable Me. And I think that's what I—that's really where the decision was made. And so you did say, "I will keep my silence and I'll watch the movie." I really wanted to watch Despicable Me. So did you watch it then and there in the back of the van, or were you taken to a cinema, or how did that work? Yeah, I was—I was taken to a secure facility underground, and and taken into taken into an MI5 briefing room, and they'd set up a. There was a projector. And there was a, 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 a woman selling overpriced soft drinks. They'd really, they'd made a big, you know, they'd made a big fuss. So I, I, I bought a drink and some Revels and, um, you know, and I sat down and yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's good. It's a good film. Now, obviously our listeners will be thinking, well, hang on, you know, your side of the bargain was to never tell anyone about this. You've just told the Beef and Dairy Network about this, where a media outlet, this will go out to millions. You know, you've you've told the world you haven't kept up your side of the bargain. No, because they didn't keep up their side of the bargain. Right. Despicable Me was put out on general release. I see. And then they brought out Despicable Me 2, Despicable Me 3, the Minions movie, and Minions 2, The Rise of Gru. So everyone's seen it. That wasn't what was agreed. So now I just, I, you know, I, I have to tell my story. I have to, I have to blow the whistle. I have to, I have to do it for Chudley. Mm. I allowed my silence to be bought on the promise of being one of the only people to ever see Despicable Me. And that did not happen. Everyone's seen it. Everyone's seen it. Sir Robert... Yes. I will ask you again, over and above the battleship and the execution of your brother, did you abuse your position? I've got a story here from the Daily Telegraph in 2010, where they write, What's going on? Is this American leather-clad kinky beefeater fucking the Queen? That, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, that makes me so angry. Because I don't fuck, I make love.
In September last year, we all said goodbye to Her Majesty for the final time. We said goodbye to our defender of the beef. Traditionally, the monarch's man at beef is either buried alive with the monarch's coffin, or their tongue is cut out and they are exiled to a remote island. When a monarch dies, traditionally their man at beef um, will not transfer into the into the following reign uh, of the next incumbent of the throne. Um, it's it's an incredibly close, incredibly complex relationship between a monarch and, and a man at beef. This is someone who will have spent their entire life delicately calibrating their own taste buds to the unique beef profile of that monarch with, with whom they've shared the life, the bond. It's a sad day, of course, because this is someone who has given themselves, um, given their life, to serve a monarch of a foreign nation uh, in the interests of world peace, of diplomacy. But the sad reality is you've got to move along, you've got to move with the times, we've got to cut this guy's tongue out. However, Sir Robert wouldn't be buried with the Queen and he wouldn't have his tongue cut out. Under the cover of darkness, he stole away from Buckingham Palace because he wanted to keep his tongue so that he could use it to blow the whistle on King Charles. It's easy to assume that I'm a coward uh, who loves his tongue too much, but I'm not a blind man, and I noticed uh, many things about the uh, the heir to the throne uh, over the years. I had a long time to observe him, and I will call him His Majesty Charles III, but I that is, in my mind, just a title. It is not something that he fully embodies, because we are talking about a uh, a man here, definitely more man than God, who is, at best, ambivalent about beef. Wow. Not that he hates it, not that he loves it, but in his words, could take or leave it. And you've heard him say those words? On many occasions. What you're saying will be a huge shock to people listening, because obviously... It should be. The the British monarchy and and beef are intrinsically linked. Mm. They are custodians of of the country's beef, Mm -hmm. and they are a, a conduit through which God and beef collide and create a kind of earthly avatar yes that they then uh, embody it's it's god's beef form on earth god's form on earth well i mean briefly jesus christ but then beef has been the the stand in if you like so what was charles doing that that made you feel uneasy about this the idea that he is gleefully telling people is shoehorning it into conversation when people aren't even talking about beef. Um, but if if he he will say, uh, you know, you could be talking about uh, 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 Formula One racing, and he'll say, oh, I could take or leave beef, and you'll say, well, we weren't we were talking about racing cars, and he would say, oh, I thought I heard somebody say beef. Wow, he's willfully doing this. So what is King Charles then? If he can take or leave beef, what are we talking about here? What kind of a person, if indeed we're talking about a person, would that be? 
what I'm about to say might be taking this too far, but you'd have to put your head in, in, in the sand to not hear some of the conspiracy theories that are going around online. Hashtag Lamb King. Um, the idea that, that Charles is, is eschewing beef entirely and instead has brought in a new regime of lamb at the palace. Mm. Can you shed any light on this? What I do know is that it smells very minty around Buckingham Palace these days. I do know that this king wears more sweaters than any monarch before has ever done. I mean, he's got jumpers for days, this guy. He's got pullovers, he's got v-necks, he's got cardigans. A sweater every day, a new sweater every day. So I'm willing to say that, yes, this so-called king is eating lamb every chance he gets and has no compunctions about doing so. Now that's behind closed doors. How soon until he's doing this in front of everyone? Mm. How soon until he's doing it in the Christmas address? Just sitting there with a big old plate of mutton in front of him and just eating it with his hands and licking his fingers, saying, boy, oh boy, do I love this lamb. And that's certainly going to please New Zealand, but are they part of the Commonwealth anymore? I don't think so. And I made sure of that. Well, thank you for giving us this wonderful interview, Sir Robert. And um, I just want to say thank you for everything you did for our Queen. Uh, she was a wonderful woman. And um, I feel warm inside with the knowledge that she spent her last 30 years on Earth with you at her side, slipping her your beef. It was my purpose in life, and I was lucky to have it. And if God should ever reunite us again, I hope there's beef in heaven. And I hope my brother's not there. A big thanks to Sir Robert Battlebus, now of course in hiding, and also to Professor James Harkham and to Timothy Spaglioni. And a final thanks to Her Majesty. We'll miss you, Babs Rascal. So that's all we've got time for this month. But if you're after more beef and dairy news, get over to our website now, where you'll find all the usual stuff, as well as our off-topic section, where this month we reveal which moths you can trust. So... Until next time, beef out. Thanks to Mike Shepard, Paul F. Tompkins, and Max Davis. And just to say that I think all of the tickets are now sold for our live show at the London Podcast Festival on the 16th of September. Um, sometimes some sort of last-minute tickets kind of appear sort of on the day. I never quite understand why that is, but like 10 or so seem to always appear. Don't quite know why that is, but in general, it's sold out. Thanks to everyone who's bought tickets. There are, however, still tickets to watch it as a live stream. And I think not only can you watch it as a live stream, if you have a ticket, you can then watch it at any point during the following week. So those are still available and there'll be a link in the episode description. So there we go. That was episode 99. Oh my God. 
Okay, zebras, uh, orangutans. Oh, yes, sorry. Hi. I'm not used to the animals talking. Uh, Who are you? Yes, my name is Carrie Poppy. I co host a podcast called Ona Ross and Carrie. This is my co host, Ross, right here. Okay. We investigate spirituality, claims of the paranormal. And we were wondering if we could get on the ark. You did come two by two. I Thank appreciate you. that. Though most of the things I'm letting on the ark don't talk. I'm going to be talking all up on this boat. Do you mind both? I prefer ark. Okay, or barge. I'm not listening, but. If you let me on, mm-hmm. then I will make my really good podcast on your boat. Can you barge. at least help clean up all the poop? I guess I don't see why not. Well, I'll check out the podcast. Where do I find it? It's on MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.